0: Greetings, and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. It's the Business of Agriculture. We're talking a lot about food, and that's because that's what our industry does, is produces food. And today, we're going to talk about meat. I've got a great guest. He's a former client. He's the president and CEO of the Southwest Meat Association. His name is Joe Harris. Joe, welcome to the Business of Agriculture.
1: Thank you for having me on today.
0: Okay, now you probably already know this because I prepped you before the show, but for our listeners to say, what are we doing today? We're going to talk all things meat. We're going to talk about what the Southwest Meat Association is, what it does, what trends Mr. Harris sees, uh, what's happening in beef in particular, because he's out of Texas where they grow a lot of beef. We're going to talk about plant-based meat. We're going to talk about the protests and the movement against meat. We're going to talk about future new products, what's selling, what's not selling interesting challenges they're facing. It's it's all about meat. So Joe Harris, president, CEO of the Southwest Meat Association and a meat guy. Tell me first off and foremost, you're out of Texas. Who are your members? What do they do?
1: Our members are, are meat and poultry processors, primarily red meat, not very many poultry processors covering the range of things all the way from harvest, all the way to fully cooked, ready to eat entrees, and everything in between, uh, Southwest Meat Association was formed in 1957 by a group of independent uh, beef, beef packers in the state of Texas, and uh, really their mission in forming the association was to form a co-op to get better fuel prices for their delivery trucks. They wanted to buy, buy fuel uh, as a co-op to get, get purchasing power and that was really how the organization started and since then it's been a continuous evolution both in, in the name of the organization as well as uh, the scope and, and what its members do. Uh, that original organization was just Texas Companies, it then grew to encompass Texas and the states that border Texas and today we while we still retain the name Southwest Meat Association, uh, we do have members in 34 states now including The far northeast and the far far northwest, as far as Alaska. So we've uh, dramatically uh, expanded our scope. We're still a a, a Texas centric organization in that the bulk of our membership is in Texas, Uh, but but we've really in recent years uh, expanded greatly across uh, multiple states.
0: Um, What we do absolutely well. Go ahead. 34 states in Alaska hardly qualifies as Southwest, but uh, this is a neat story, and some of those members are there because they are vendors and sell to your people, and then some of them have a vested interest. I mean, who, who are the members? Tell me about the members. You said mostly processors, but also you know who else?
1: As you point out, in addition to the actual packers and processors that belong, uh, we do have associate members that want to That's it, any company that would like to sell something to a packer or a processor. Um, our regular membership ranges in size from uh, very, very small companies with two employees up to some of the large, largest multinational meat processors in, in the world, including, including you know, some of the, the major packers in this country. We like to say that our typical member is a family-owned business with about 75 employees on average.
0: Okay, so what do you do for them? Because obviously I work doing speeches for a lot of associations, professional associations, trade associations. I know what happens, but to the person that's listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast are saying, okay, I get it. I understand meat. I understand meat processing. You just said a couple of important things there. You said the average member that you represent has about seventy-five employees, which tells me Tyson and Cargill are not members, or maybe they are, but they don't really show up. <laughs> You're talking about more the family owned or the, the, the guy and his wife that started out in 1971 uh, in, in Amarillo, and then they make beef jerky and canned meat with uh, old call cows. I mean, is that kind of what we're talking about here?
1: There, we have a, a lot of sausage processors, uh, and you, you happen to, to pick out Tyson and Cargill. Cargill is actually currently a member. Tyson has been in the past, and hopefully, will be again in the future. But when we, we talk about the what we think of as kind of the middle of the organization, the the core of our membership is is that company uh, that I described. And one of the one of the unique things about those, and the, one of the things that I like the best about my job, are the reason that those still exist. Those ones that, as you mentioned, were started in 1971 or even much earlier, and you're very well aware of the dramatic consolidation we've had in our industry. Uh, I have great admiration for those companies that found a way to survive and, and carve out their little their little piece of the pie and, and remain successful over all these years. And that's yeah, really, that's- if I could boil it down to in a nutshell, the number one thing I believe that we are best at providing our members is just that whatever it takes to help them uh, continue to survive, whether that be regulatory support which is, is huge these days, especially for small businesses uh, that, don't, that yeah. don't aren't able to have dedicated staff that do nothing but regulatory.
0: Right, I mean, you've got a good story there and in, in that you you're talking about, okay, it's the smaller organization. Clearly they're not bringing in uh, and, and harvesting and slaughtering 10,000 steers per day uh, in Dodge City, Kansas. Uh, they're more they're more doing some specialty or niche product. And, uh, and and they're they're still important to their communities. They probably tend to be in smaller communities. They have a, a good following of customer base, but they don't have the outreach. They can't call a meeting with the congressman uh, over some environmental compliance uh, issue, right?
1: That is absolutely correct. And th- those are the kinds of things that we help them with, and. Just what every association, you know, strives to do is to consolidate a group of voices uh, on issues that are important to that industry. And that is one of the things that we do. We are not uh, extensive lobbyists. We're not well-funded enough to be extensive in, in the lobbying area, but we do take groups of our members to Washington twice a year and on a lobbying trip, and we we go up and down the halls on Capitol Hill, knock on doors, and uh, be sure that uh, Congress does hear from these companies and, and uh, understands that those issues that they're working on in Washington day in and day out have a major impact on what these small businesses have to deal with.
0: Absolutely. So uh, in, in the business of meat, what tell me what you see happening. I mean, I keep up with this. I put stuff all over social media every day. I'm, I'm covering this because I've, I speak at the Meetings about the business of agriculture i am all over the place with this, so I know what I see happening. What do you see happening from your stance? You've got a pretty good handle on on this. obviously all of your membership you got what a few hundred members uh, about 200, uh, they, they about 230 members two hundred and thirty members. So what are they telling you they're seeing? What are you seeing?
1: Definitely a trend toward you know convenience meats. Uh, sausage has been so strong in, in recent years and continues to be getting a ever growing piece of the retail case. Uh, for these for these companies, the ones that are doing well are those that have, you know, I talked about they've carved out their niche, but at the same time, uh, what's making them successful is their ability to diversify and make products that are not traditional products. The, the uncured meats, uh, we have one member who's almost exclusively uncured bacon and is doing tremendously well with it. You alluded to it earlier, I think there's a tremendous shift or not a shift, but a trend toward uh, restaurants and, and retail wanting to, to be local. And these small companies are very, very well adapted to being able to provide those sorts of things and form alliances with retailers, uh, with restaurants or restaurant chains and, and provide some of that, that local flavor, if you will.
0: Okay, Joe Harris, President CEO of Southwest Meat Association. You see a lot. Your members see a lot. What are some trends in meat that the average consumer is probably doing and understands, but probably doesn't understand as a trend necessarily? I could say, okay, bacon. I work for the pork people. Bacon's really hot. I assume you would say, yes, bacon's hot. What else?
1: Ba- bacon has been been just continuing to climb for uh, probably the last ten years. It's really an amazing success story. We're seeing. Uh, a resurgence, I think, of the small craft type uh, sausage products. We're seeing uh, growing retail space devoted to sausage products. Obviously, the uncured meat uh, label has, has become quite popular. We're seeing a growing trend toward local, locally sourced meats and, and produce as well, but you know, we're focusing on meat right here. Uh, a lot of these small companies are very well-situated to be able to provide that, those sorts of locally sourced items that uh, really seem to be in high demand with consumers right now, consumers seem to be demonstrating a, a real desire to sort of know where their know where their food is coming from and and having that local connection to it. They, I think, they feel better about themselves. As an industry, we don't we don't claim that it's any better for you than anything else, but I think consumers feel better about buying it
0: yeah I think that's what's interesting, you know a long time ago, I said all the consumer push started on a four five six, seven, eight years ago, local local local, and I'm like, well, first off, define it. Uh, you know, local, does that mean it comes from across the street? It came from your, your backyard? Oh, well, it came from uh, Missouri. Well, hell, I'm in Indiana. How local is Missouri? But that's a funny thing. And then people do like to say, well, I don't know where my food comes from, to which I always point out. That doesn't mean they want to come into the slaughterhouse and actually kill and cut up the, the cow. Uh, they, they'd be mortified by that. They want the story they want to be able to go and tell their friends that they eat local. They want to be able to have the story. And that's what matters to them. And that's where I see a bunch of your membership being perfectly positioned. Like you say, hey, we're right here. We're Texas Family Company. Been here for you know 47 years. Um, so I agree with all that. What kind of products... Do you guys, do your people have a special, uh, opportunity to produce, you know, jerky? I, I sat once with a, a jerky guy. I thought that was really interesting. It might've been at your conference. Is there, is there a special thing that you guys really have?
1: Well, our, our membership is, is often diverse, but I, I will say this, if, as I just think across our core membership, I, I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of sausage makers, a lot of really good sausage makers, uh, from fairly large to some really, really small places that make some really unique, traditional, old German t- style sausages. Uh, the, the central Texas area has, has a huge German influence uh, going back 150 years. And that, is, that has uh, remained in, in some of the products that we see in my part of the world. We make an awful lot of turkey legs amongst <laughs> SMA members. The smoked turkey legs that you see at Ferry festivals and, and all the places, uh, uh, there's an awful lot of those produced. And a lot of just cured meats in general. We're seeing a lot of members, at least several members, now. I see diversifying and getting into soups and sauces and gravies and, and finding other
0: ways to sort of boost the bottom line. Okay. So the good news is your memberships, uh, your membership actually sounds like they're doing just fine. And it, this might fly in the face of what other people would say because they've been hearing that Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger is a reality. So tell me what the what that reality does look like. Your guys are doing fine. It sounds like.
1: They are. They're still seeing great demand for their product. They're seeing uh, year-to-year growth in their sales. Uh, we're very much aware of the uh, plant-based meat products that are that are coming online and starting to get a lot of attention. Uh, there's no doubt that they're that those are going to start, uh, you know, gaining more momentum. At least it appears that they're going to. Um, as consumers become more familiar with them, we'll 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 see. My experience so far is that the plant-based meats are actually more expensive. And if, if the consumer doesn't have a strong preference for them, I uh, read an article today, though, that there may be an opportunity for uh, smaller meat processors to take advantage of that and incorporate some of those products in, into, the, into meat products.
0: Joe Harris, t- answer me this. Uh, some folks say that the argument is going to be moving against meat. I see this happening right now. I see it most pointedly in uh, a certain political group that uh, wants to have a cause, and one of their causes is working against meat. What do you see from the Southwest Meat Association?
1: Well, there, there's always there's always been detractors. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is that, that meat still is a healthy, nutritious, you know, relatively inexpensive source of good, good, high quality protein. And we just got to keep telling our story and talking about the good things that we're doing as an industry, the stewardship of the land, trying to, you know, work on the sustainability issues. The industry is really taking the lead on those, those types of things and responding to, to concerns that, that have been, you know, some, some of the legitimate concerns that have been expressed over the years. But, yeah, there's always going to be activists with a cause that are going to work against us. One of, one of my goals is to make sure that we don't give them ammunition and make and shoot ourselves in the foot through practices. We want to make sure that as an industry, we're doing things right and doing the best that we can do to to uh, address those concerns before they become concerns.
0: Right. Okay. I'm looking at the per capita consumption of poultry and livestock. It's a neat chart that I pull. It goes back to 1960 and it's got the pounds of red meat. Um, and it's interesting if you've ever keeping up, if you've ever kept up with this. You know, there was a time in this country when, uh, in the early 1970s, we ate 90 to 94 pounds of beef, and now we're down to about 57. Uh, pork has been been really close to the same, and then the big thing, of course, is that chickens have gone up from uh, the year I was born, 1969, 35 pounds of chicken to almost 100, 95 pounds. I think is what they're saying, 92 to 95 pounds now. Uh, what, what do you see when you look at the meat consumption?
1: Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The data is what the data is, and we have, we have seen that trend. Uh, I think we've seen some, some, ta- some tapering off in recent years, uh, that, that things are remaining a little more stable. But, yes, chicken, you know, over the last, over the last 45 years has uh, just gone crazy. We've Again, I think in recent years, the data would show that it has is, it is leveled off. Uh, and beef, after, after years of decline, it, it leveled off. And and I don't see that changing a whole lot. Uh, you know, I think think now that's the the sheer numbers of of consumers out there. Um, you know, the amount of meat we're producing. I I think it's going to remain fairly stable going forward.
0: Yeah, I actually I I do too. And you know, I speak at meat conferences. I was at the Erver Berry uh, Protein Conference in Las Vegas, and there was a lot of different uh, industry analysis. You know, we've had vegetarian. Uh, people for a while we've had vegetarian protein products for a while when I was a kid it was soy burgers. you know um, the only thing that 's changed to me that I can see is the number of people identifying as vegetarians has increased by about two and a half to three times. I read an article a decade ago that said two percent or of this country is vegetarian, and five years ago they still said about two to three percent article I just read within the last month and a half said that we're at 6% identify as vegetarian and 5% identify as vegan. Now, of course, identify is an interesting statement. We never even heard that until a few years ago when people started identifying as Native Americans or identifying as a gender they were not. We don't need to get into the whole political uh, fray, but, but, but if you identify as a vegetarian, I don't think it necessarily means you are a vegetarian. What do you think?
1: I'm, I'm right there with you. I was actually going to point that out as you were giving those statistics. I was going to point out that you, the word you, you are using or quoting from those statistics is the word identify. You know, we, we, we see the same thing sometimes on survey work where we talk about consumer preferences and talk about consumers' intent to do this or intent to purchase Well, you know, I was traveling yesterday, and uh, I had, if you had asked me the night before last, was I going to get up and go to the gym at the hotel first thing in the morning, get a good workout before breakfast, I would say, absolutely, I intend to do that. Uh, But if you had asked me yesterday afternoon, had I done it, it may not have been the same answer identify is a little bit like
0: intent uh you know what i remember i think i remember that you're like uh, one of those guys that's like a, a an old branch guy that has a phd or something because you're, you're like one of those really sharp guys even though you wear your cowboy boots and you go out there and you you're not afraid to walk through the cow pit you're like one of those really sharp guys you picked up on the language of identify and intend. i think that's fantastic by the way, uh, you're right about that. And I make the crack all the time, Joe, that there's people that, uh, again, that will say they're vegetarian. I think that this is about shaming. The new trend, if you keep up, is meat shaming, that folks believe that they are morally superior because they don't eat meat and they don't, therefore, have to have some animal uh, slaughtered for their consumption. So then they make people feel guilty that are around them for eating meat. So there's a thing called meat shaming. So it could be that folks say, well, yeah, I'm a vegetarian, just so they'll get their uh, their peers off their back. What do you think?
1: I think you're completely correct. And uh, you know, I can think even e- examples of, of young people that I know that uh, the some of the social circles in, in which they circulate, I have no doubt that there may be times when they, when they uh, Feel that kind of, of peer pressure and possibly even succumb to that kind of peer pressure on. Oh, I you know I can't believe that you still eat meat, knowing what we know about you know factory farms and you know this that and the other. So uh, and yet when they're in other social circles like the ones that I circulate in, they are among the biggest carnivores you'll ever see.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I've not given in to any societal pressure because I absolutely uh, love meat. Now, speaking of such things. Um, Bill de Blasio, and I know this is really funny, Me he says, you're a Texan guy. You're a cowboy boot-wearing Texas guy. And if I just mention Bill de Blasio, I know that you almost break out in hives and start to shake, because there's a thing that I know. Texans do not like New Yorkers. Texans just absolutely want New York to be its own country. The mayor of New York City declared meatless Mondays. He made it so that New York City schools, with their millions of children, don't eat meat on Mondays. And he made it all about environmentalism and health, environmentalism and health. Those are the two new trigger causes. It used to be cruelty to animals, and we've gotten through a lot of that. And we've gotten through a lot of the health thing because we can prove, no, 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 a bunch of sugar and carbohydrates is why the kids are fat. It's not because they eat a cheeseburger. But now it's going to be about environmental causes. You tell me your thoughts about that. You can start with the New York thing first.
1: Well, you can imagine how, as... As a Texan first, and as a, a meat scientist and a meat industry um, advocate, you can imagine how I feel about meatless Mondays uh, anywhere. <laughs> uh, I, I can assure you that uh, that doesn't occur in uh, in Texas school districts. But you know, it might be the last. School, days,
0: I, hey, that might be the last state in the union, uh, Joe. Like if there's meatless Mondays in 49 states, I'll tell you the one that will never happen, and it'll be the dead last one, right? We, we
1: hope we feel that way. I hope that's true. The, you know, the idea of the, these politicians meddling in, in school lunch programs, we, we've seen that we, this isn't the first, first politician that wanted to get their fingers uh, in, into uh, deciding what school kids get the opportunity to have access to. Um, you know, my personal belief is that absolutely is a local decision and, and New York is within its, within its prerogative to do something like that. But, that's just going to be one more day of the week that the kids don't want to eat the food in the cafeteria.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing when they like to talk about and Michelle Obama went crazy on the whole school lunch thing and took it to chocolate milk is not available in schools. I said, okay, uh, You know, just because you want to feel that you just saved the world, what you did, it was make sure that this little kid right here, and some of these kids absolutely do need the nutrition, is not going to get a carton of milk at all. And if you think that the little bit of sugar and cocoa in that chocolate milk is the problem, no, it's the three bags of uh, chips a kid's going to go home and eat today uh, with their EBT card that they swipe at the convenience store down the street from their apartment. So you and I are both in full agreement on that. What do you do? What do we do? What does the meat industry do?
1: Again, I think we could continue our our, our efforts, and and they they've been ongoing. And you know, it's it's fighting an uphill battle at times, but we continue to try to produce uh, appetizing, safe, nutritious products. Um, emphasize again the nutrient density. That's that's one of the, it's one of the red meat industry's you know great stories to tell. Is the, is the cheap source of nutrition that you, you know, the amount of nutrition you get. Uh, for the dollars you spend is is amazing uh, with with meats in general and especially red meats. Um, we got to keep getting that message out. I know that you know a lot of a lot of a lot of meat companies sell meats into the school lunch programs programs around the country. And we know that those school the school districts around the country as a whole continue to uh, demand high quality meats. They continue to demand, Little uh, more diversity in the meat products. Uh, we had a presentation from USDA at our annual meeting last month talking about some of the, some of the opportunities there are now to sell uh, somewhat unique meat products into the school lunch program. And it was great news uh, to my members and possibly some opportunities there to present, produce sausage products and, and other things like that for school lunch programs.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually something I've seen you just mentioning is like the third uh, case of me hearing about this, Joe. I saw it in a a school district. There was a big article, a big write-up about it, that they were going to do everything they could as a district to source some local, to not only help the local economy, but then also to do in some food education, which of course we should be all about. Like, hey, get those kids out there. They can understand where where this food comes from, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a good idea. So, okay, so you have- I
1: saw a great story on our local news this morning. A, a an acquaintance of mine is the uh, director of school nutrition uh, for the independent school district here, and they had her on this morning, and and she was showing the typical breakfast and lunch that they're serving uh, at the local school here. And my goodness, uh, it's way it is amazing where they've come since the last time I was in a school cafeteria. Uh, not only do they get a good, balanced diet and cover all the government guidelines on this nutrient and that nutrient and the caloric density and all, and all the things that go with it, but it looked awfully good. They had a great-looking imitation Chick-fil-A chicken and biscuit. I mean, they had a fried piece of chicken on a biscuit for breakfast. It uh, looked, looked like something you'd wait, wait around the you know, drive through window for
0: that's, that's fantastic, because, yeah, there were some school lunches that we all suffered through back 40 years ago that uh, it's, it's a wonder. Uh, yes, it was disgusting. So, here's another question for you. Uh, speaking of the school lunch and then the Bill de Blasio, there's always a political component to this. Food is a very political thing. You have a job as president and CEO of the Southwest Meat Association that puts you in a position to be a political lobbyist or a political outreach person. What kind of battles are you facing?
1: Well, the... the- Number one, we've got two key messages that we have been taking to Capitol Hill for a little while now. Um, well, well, really, I want to add a third one that's that's more recent. But if you look at what issues my members are facing right now, when we're on Capitol Hill, we are we are really beating them up over access to labor and immigration reform, and you know that's that's tied up at presidential level politics, and Congress isn't going to fix it. But that is the number one biggest issue that my members are facing. As you already pointed out, most of them are in somewhat rural areas and access to labor is the one thing that it inhibits their ability to grow and it absolutely keeps them awake at night trying to figure out how they're going to keep everybody hired. And you know the, the other side of the argument is always, well, you just want to hire this immigrant labor because you can get them for cheap and don't have to pay them and, and this, that, and the other. The reality of the situation is I can take you to a very small town in Texas right now. The local packing plant has a billboard up outside that says, if you're legal to work, we'll hire you sight unseen at starting at a minimum of $15 an hour with benefits, with paid time off and guarantee you 60 hours a week. There's money to be made. And so that's,
0: isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Because I've had to defend this also, and I've I've been out on the forefront as an ag biz guy saying we need to we need to be pushing for uh, some sort of a legal uh, path for to get workers here because it's. It's not because it's so cheap. You know, I do business with a lot of dairy organizations. They're, they're starting wage to somebody to put milkers on cows is like twelve dollars and 13 dollars an hour. And you're talking about a rural area. Sometimes that also comes with a house, so you can have housing and thirteen dollars an hour to put milkers on a cow. What you just said is very accurate, and you know, uh, those, those places uh, are are they're not they're you know they're not like working in uh, in a cushy office but I mean, they're, they're good job. They the
1: work is hard. There's no two ways about it. And that's one of the reasons that we need folks to be able to immigrate here legally and, and do the, do the work. The, the, the reality is that uh, some of those immigrants are very, very dedicated, hardworking employees, and we need access to them. Um, we don't have any problem with having controls at the border and controlling who comes and goes. We're all for that. Uh, but we need access to that labor. And that's, that's one of our number one messages. Uh, the second issue that we're very vocal on when we're there is, is trade. Uh, we're strongly supportive of getting the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal uh, put back together, that the replacement for NAFTA. You know, the fact of the matter was NAFTA was pretty good for our industry. Uh, we didn't want to see it go in the first place, but now that it's gone, we want USMCA put back in place. Uh, it's, it's good, it's good for, the, for the meat industry, and, and we need that. And, uh, we've touched on it a couple of t- different ways already, but another thing that we're reminding them of, and, and Damon, this may be the first time in my career that I have ever gone up on Capitol Hill and asked for a regulation to be passed. Uh, we're always anti-regulation. We want regulations to go away and not be, not become or not, not, right, be passed, right, right. but we need, we need our federal government to pass rules, uh, or established rules on labeling of these alternative, uh, produced meats, whether it be plant-based or self-cultured. Um, we don't want, we don't want to have what happened with the, uh, dairy industry and almond milk. We want to make sure that, uh, you know, we're not opposed to being innovative and creating new products, but we don't want them to, we want a, a level playing field. A good example of that is the impossible burger. And I'm not picking on the impossible meats because, you know, they do what they do. But if my member produces something in an FSIS plant and calls it a burger, it has to be 100% beef. Yeah, yeah. no. Now they're calling something a burger that has zero. Right, and beef. I agree
0: with you. Now I have. There's a few of my dairy friends have gotten upset with me, as I have pointed out. I said dairy's problems are not with the word milk. Uh, you lost you lost the battle because you kept thinking it was 1940, and you thought it was how many gallons you could squeeze out of a Holstein and stick in a jug, when all of your competition was coming out with all sorts of other claims, other new nifty products, and and uh, it, and it, it wowed the customer. You're still over there. Uh, your label still says grade A uh, whole milk. And so, I don't believe that the dairy thing was helped by letting other products be called milk, but I also don't think that's the reason we've gone from 47 gallons of consumption per human in America down to 16 gallons, gallons—you know, one-third of what it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. I agree with you that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't allow Ham Possible Burger to say something as burger when it's not. Uh, again, the my read on plant-based meat, which I know it's really not, is that it's going to be sold on an environmental standpoint. Like the folks that buy it think they're changing the world because they've read something about cow farts and they listened to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and it resonated with them. I don't know if it's going to matter as much about the label. I hear what you're saying. I don't disagree. Let's make sure we call it meat substitute or call it uh, plant-based mm-hmm. protein. But I'm not sure that that's the real reason that you'll lose consumers. I think you're going to lose the first few percent of consumers are going to dabble in it. And it's going to be because they want to think they're changing the world. It goes back to that moral superiority thing. Is that your read?
1: I do agree with you on that. And, you know, I think we need to do a better job of telling our story. I've seen a lot of studies recently. They don't, you know, I see them because I'm looking for them. I'm not sure how much how much play they get in the uh, mainstream media uh, talking about the environmental piece of that and how you know these plant based plant based products are not necessarily any more environmentally friendly than anything no, else. No, 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 it, no, they're uh,
0: probably beef not. Beef production is
1: much more environmentally friendly than people give it credit for. Uh, the other part of th- that I, that I sort of left out talking about the labeling part of that. The reason we want to see the federal government get off their hands and move quickly is we've already seen several states pass their own laws on this. And the last thing that the meat industry likes to see is a patchwork of state laws that are all different on a particular subject when it comes to labeling our products.
0: Yeah, then it becomes you've got to package a different way for all the states and then a different compliance, et cetera. So I agree with that. It was the same thing with the GMO thing. Uh, so- what was that uh, answer me this. My my tell my guess my gut. I say that plant based meat is for real because it's got a ton of money behind it. I mean, it's like Amazon. You talk about Beyond Meat, the company. They have not made any actual profit. They lost money again last quarter. They only sold $67 million worth of their product last quarter. You know, McDonald's sells $67 million worth of cheeseburgers in an afternoon. Uh, uh, so, they're certainly not of scale, but they have tons of investor money coming into them. I believe that the products will exist. I think Impossible and Beyond will stay around. I don't think it's going to be as easy for the cell culture, as you called it, Petri dish protein, and that's because, that's because it's so far away from natural. It's an easy sell. You, being a brilliant beef guy, can say, <laughs> well, if you want a natural plate of food, you tell me how Petri dish protein made by some guy in a lab coat works into that, and boom, yeah. it, you've just won the battle.
1: Yeah, if if you think factory farming is bad, uh, how about lab lab grown?
0: Right. And that'd be the argument. If I was the marketing person, that would be the argument I would come up with. I think plant based meat ends up, uh, it's not going to take over steak or pork chops or brisket. It'll probably take over some of the burger market. Article I read said 40% of beef becomes burger. So if that's the case, that means that it'll end up taking over some burger. I don't think it's going to be so significant that all of a sudden we have, uh, you know, 20% of the beef herd is replaced in three years, but it'll end up being a real problem. Product, but it will probably take a, I don't know, a few percent of the burger market, is my guess.
1: I, I think you're right. It's going to it's going to carve out some little piece of that. Uh, I, I think there'll be a, a cap on it. I, I do think that you're going to be fair, fairly limited. I think you'll see it sort of maybe run up and then taper back off as people have tried it. And said, oh, well, yeah. OK, um, it was fine. I ate it. Uh, it wasn't worth paying more for because I noticed the Impossible Whopper is actually a dollar more than a regular Whopper.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it'll—I don't think the money will even be the reason for the people that are hardcore. But the—the the, like I said, the people that are doing it because they want to make a statement. So your statement purchasers, the dollar—they're they're making the dollar purchase because of the statement. So closing thoughts, Joe Harris, President, CEO, Southwest Meat Association. You're a meat guy. You're a beef guy. You're a meat eater. Uh, closing thoughts. Anybody in the business of agriculture, what do you want to leave them with?
1: You know, we've uh, got the pleasure of, of working for an industry that is is innovative, that continues to to face challenges. You know, one of the things we, we didn't even touch on is the regular. We briefly touched on regulatory, but just the food sa- food safety challenges they that that they face every day on trying to find new and innovative ways to keep things like salmonella and E. coli out of our products or get get them out of our product. Uh, you know, reduce the number of foodborne illnesses. I know there was a a CDC report just today about a salmonella outbreak from, from a few months ago, um, linked, some of it linked to beef products. And, you know, those are, those are never a good thing. And this industry continues to struggle, uh, not struggle, but strive to, to get those, get new innovations, new ways. And I think you're going to see an industry that continues to diversify and find ways to satisfy consumer desires for thing, things like knowing where their food comes from, knowing how it was raised, how it was processed, you know, how it was handled. And uh, I think we'll continue to make great strides in that regard. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to face some challenges from, from, you know, whether it be, you know, we didn't even talk about the economics of our industry and the ups and downs that we face there, Uh, you know, the current situation with the corn crop, which you know more about that than I do. You study that stuff more than I do. Uh, But, but, you know, corn is a huge input into into, uh, grain-fed beef in this country. And uh, when we see a disruption there, when we see a disruption in the pork market from things like uh, foreign animal diseases like African swine uh, fever and and those things, um, we're going to continue to meet those challenges head on. And I, I think the industry's got a bright future.
0: Well, you know what I was prepared. I thought we were, we were done, but you brought up two interesting topics and I think our listeners love us well enough they 'll stick with us for another minute or two let 's go ahead and get both of those that you said we didn't cover uh, you've said first off uh, on the regulatory. Uh, and how hard we work as an industry to keep our food safe. That's one thing that I point out all the time. The media loves the fear factor. You know, one person in the United States of America died because of Bluebell ice cream two years ago. Uh, you know, that's in their Texas based ice cream company to mention one of your places. It, one person dying is tragic, but it's one person out of 330 million. How many of those 330 million ate ice cream this week? How many of them died? One. You know, we're talking about just rare, rare occurrences. We have the safest. And most abundant food supply in the history of human development, and so we really should embrace that and make sure that our consumer understands that. And all this whole thing about you know meat and I don't want to eat meat; it's bad. No, meat is as you said, beef. Increasingly, I believe we're going to have grass-fed beef because there's going to be marginal lands that can uh, can can be taken out of crop production and put into range again. I think that actually the grass, the cattle on grass will grow. I think we have a great story there to tell about the environmental compliance, but also about again the food safety. And then the thing you just mentioned about corn prices—hey, corn corn's cheap. They're doing a plant tour, a farm tour up here in my part of the world right now, and we're going to have a little more corn than we thought, which I think that bodes well. Uh, but ultimately, I think that ten years from now, twenty years from now, if you and I do this podcast ten years from now, we're going to realize that what we used to do, Joe, was work really hard at getting cattle onto feed yards and say, how many pounds can we make based on how much corn we can give them? I think we're going to be using more natural uh, uh, grazing because of marginal land 10 years from now, just because I think that's really going to happen. But you tell me your thoughts.
1: Well, I think you're right. And, and uh, it was interesting. I was reading an article just uh, in, the last, in the last day or so talking about you know this year's corn crop. And uh, it was a lot of gloom and doom a couple of months ago. Oh gosh! How, and then now, the re, as the reports are coming out, there's it looks like they got more and more of it planted earlier than they thought they did. And and uh, I, you know, I do think that that's going to going to taper taper off and be be fairly normal. But I agree with you. I think we can do a lot more as we go forward and, and learn more and more about feeding cattle and and using ways to to utilize grasslands up until up until at least a certain point. We know that. The American appetite for grain-fed beef is not going away anytime soon, but I do think that we're going to we're going to find new ways of using less grain and achieving the same result.
0: Got it, got it. And as you said, uh, with what's going on in Asia, with the fact that all their pigs are dying, we're going to need some protein, and they're going to need some protein. So I think we're going to have an opportunity to send some protein overseas, working on a little bit of a trade deal, and then uh, they're going to need it. And if they don't buy it from us, they'll buy it from Brazil. And then whoever was selling buying Brazil's beef will take ours. So I think you're you're uh, you're probably dead on. We're going to sell some beef and some pork in the next year. It may not be directly to China, but it's going to fill the world market. Exactly.
1: We are. We're in a global economy now. We're in a global market for a lot of these proteins and other, not just proteins, but other commodities as well. So as you say, when When uh, one country assumes some of that market, well, that creates a hole somewhere else.
0: (laughs) And a lot of folks don't get that. I get people mad at me. They tell me that uh, that's not the case. But uh, you and I both know that is the case. Joe Harris, thanks for being on here, man. I really appreciate it. And you want to come back and do this again? We can talk about beef trends and meat trends in another year or two?
1: It it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come on again sometime and and, uh, dig deeper.
0: Got it. Till next time. Hey, thanks for joining me, Joe. Have a great one. All right. Till next time. It's the business of agriculture.